All right, let's get started here. Romans 12. Romans 12. Valerie had a great question last week. And as I got thinking about it, uh, I know we answered part of it. What can we do with texts that talk about prophecy if we're saying prophecy was a gift uh, that had a temporary nature? Um, but I want to revisit the, there, there might be another angle there, and I'm not sure even if, Valerie, it's what you were asking, but I want to uh, visit this text just for a moment. Romans chapter 12 and verse 6. Paul, writing to Rome, is admonishing them regarding life in the body as a particular member who offers its gift. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then the rest of the chapter unfolds with a, just a kind of tidal wave of imperatives to keep us living out this life of a living sacrifice. Uh, the question in verse 6 then, regarding prophecy, if the gift of prophecy use that gift in proportion to our faith, um, If, if the question, if we're just focusing on this phrase, uh, and I think we can do that in both the English and the original language because there's a little bit of, of gap that we have to think through to make sure we understand what's being said. Uh, when it says, in proportion to our faith, notice it doesn't say, it's not the word portion. It's not about the measure of the faith, like how much faith is there. It's not, that would be a portion based on the portion of your faith. The word is proportion, meaning the part is considered comparatively with something larger. So if you're going to prophesy, somehow that happens in relationship to something that's more. It's the word proportion, not portion. Uh, in the Greek, we get the English word analogy. In Greek, it's just analogia. Um, Analogy is similar. It's a comparison of things. One thing exists in this context of analogy by comparing it to something else. So proportion and analogy, similar English words. So our translation is kind of fine there, but we have to be thinking this gift of prophecy is exercised in comparison to something else. And generally, if we go with uh, the general meaning, something more, something complete. Um, what's interesting in translation uh, here, uh, this is one of those issues where, you know, I, I just don't know how, why translation choices are made sometimes, other than perhaps in some of the references to the other gifts, they may have personal pronouns. But with this gift of prophecy, there is, no pro there is no pronoun that has a personal nature. The word our is not there. Rather, it's the word the, a definite article, which means if you prophesy, it should be in comparison to the faith. 
this is a similar expression in Jude. We earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. So in the Reformation, a principle emerged that was called the analogy of faith, based on the English translation of these words, proportion of faith. The analogy of the faith, which meant in Bible interpretation, anytime we come to Scripture and and kind of proffer our interpretation, it must be judged by, compared with the rest of Scripture. So we would often say we interpret Scripture by Scripture. If I say I think it means this, but it contradicts somewhere else, then it doesn't mean that. Um, That's what the Reformers were arguing in this principle, the analogy of the faith. We compare all of our interpretations with Scripture because we believe in sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the sole sufficient authority. And if we believe that, and Scripture is a unity, it doesn't have contradictions, then we can't say, well, I interpret it this way even though it contradicts over here. Uh, Something's gone wrong in our interpretation. Uh, Some argue and obviously those who aren't going to affirm biblical authority, that it's circular reasoning. Well, I will interpret this passage this way because the Bible says this over here. And then I go over here, and I find that to be consistent with what I interpreted here. And they say, well, wait a minute, you're just going in circles. Well, you could say circular reasoning, or you could say it's presuppositional. I am assuming ahead of time, I'm supposing ahead of time that the Bible is true. And it doesn't have error or contradiction. So if I come across an interpretive struggle or contradiction, I have to step back and say, what does the Bible say in other places that informs me in this passage? That led to a secondary principle of let the clear interpret the unclear. Anytime you're foggy about something, find other places in the scripture where there's clarity on that issue and start there. Um, because somehow you, you cannot build an argument in the fog and then say, well, it doesn't quite agree with the Bible over here, but I think that's what it's saying. It, it's not. Uh, don't ask the Bible to contradict itself. It's saying it doesn't, so you don't get to say maybe it is on this particular point. So at least in understanding that phrase, that doesn't really answer fully every question about prophecy, and it certainly doesn't prove a temporary nature by itself, but it does help us think that even that gift of prophecy here in Romans 12 was given in analogy or in proportion. It was to be compared to the whole of revealed truth. Roy? Don't we pretty much all of us carry some thoughts that are in contradiction to each other, even while understanding that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, yet we are driven by what we understand to say, I believe this to be true, and I believe that to be true, and I don't know how to reconcile them. Yeah, I think if we couch it that way, we're, we're very much honoring the authority of Scripture, but we're declaring in this mind, we might not be able to understand how they go together. We call it tension oftentimes in, in theological books. They'll say we hold these things in tension. It, our minds can't quite see how it all works. Um, 
So if you're not an engineer, you might not understand the way they talk. If you're not an automobile guy and someone's talking why something's sputtering, you're thinking, I, I don't know what you're saying, but I'm going to take it as true. We come to Scripture with our limitations um, at some level uh, because we do believe that God has revealed himself in words that can be understood, yet the Bible itself will, be, will tell us some things are hard to understand and some things partially revealed are a bit mysterious. They're the secret things that we don't have full information about. I was going to point out as an example of how can God be absolutely sovereign and man still have a free will. Yet scripture teaches both of those. Those I don't believe are resolvable in the human mind because they are bound up in the inscrutability of God. Sure. Uh, that, that debate certainly rages and some think they have great clarity. Others acknowledge they don't and Usually, more words don't always just win the day. Um, God is sovereign. He makes that clear uh, over all things. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And yet there's this element of human responsibility that we're told when sinners sin, as Peter keeps telling us, Acts 2, 3, 4, and again in 5, this Jesus whom God ordained for this, you crucified, um, and he tells them to repent. So man is responsible, yet God is sovereign. And in our minds, sometimes we get down a path and we think, all right, I think I'm understanding. I think I see how it works. And then you get hit with something and you're like, I, I'm not sure how that goes together. Um, and that's okay. The Spirit will give us light in interpreting his word, um, but it doesn't always mean it's going to be perfect light on <laughs> every bit of truth that can be known. Uh, all right, so don't be discouraged thinking I'll never understand the Bible. That's exactly what we're trying to avoid by talking about interpretation of Scripture. We are to work hard at interpreting Scripture. Um, and the vast majority of it, we should understand and we should do. But as Deuteronomy 29 tells us, the secret things belong to the Lord uh, but the things that he has revealed are for us and for our children. So not only can we know it, but we should be able to break it down enough that we could actually teach it, and it's going to keep going down through the generations. All right, so keep studying on that uh, Romans 12 text. Let's, um, let's press on with this other matter then, as we've been trying to... Um, basically assign a temporary nature to some of the spiritual gifts. We've talked about prophecy now, and the, the other interpretive uh, battle I wanted us to face was the matter of tongues. Um, if you are to say that all of the gifts continue in the same way, the same normative function, uh, then we would have to say that the gift of tongues continues as well. The continuationists, however, do not argue that Acts 2 was unrecognizable speech or babbling. They will recognize that in Acts 2, it is clearly defined as foreign languages. Uh, they agree to that. So as we've read in Acts 2, that moment, that day of Pentecost, 50 days after uh, the Passover, um, Peter stands up to preach. Others of the disciples are also speaking, and it 
lists all those different nationalities that were amazed when they heard this good news in their own language. Uh, clearly a sign through this communication in foreign languages. Um, but later in Acts chapter 10 and, verse, and chapter 19, and then in 1 Corinthians, a continuationist argues that tongues there means something other than foreign languages. So even in the book of Acts itself, and then later in 1 Corinthians, the continuationists, and again, these, these are brothers of ours. These are guys who are going to think in, in so many ways like we do. They would, they would gladly sit as members in our church, and you would probably likely in theirs. So again, we're talking about kind of friendly conversations about very nuanced matters of ecclesiology. But these guys will say that in Acts 2, as they read, it's clearly foreign languages, but by the time they're eight chapters later, oh, this is clearly not foreign languages. This is just unintelligible speech that needs to be interpreted, and that interpretation would be intelligible and knowable. Um, and the same in 1 Corinthians, some kind of unintelligible utterance. But again, I would, I would argue, as I attempted to do uh, with prophecy, that the burden of proof is on them to show us why the definition changes, other than the presupposition that all the gifts have to continue in the same way as normative for the church. Based on that presupposition, we have to do something with the definition of tongues because it is clearly, you know, they've changed it uh, eight chapters later and in the letter to Corinthians. Now, a brief history of just looking through the church's understanding of this matter would show us that for the early centuries, the church fathers uh, clearly believed tongues were foreign languages. For the hundreds of years pre-Reformation, kind of the Dark Ages, when it was just the church becoming more and more the church of Rome, uh, Roman Catholicism, the tongues controversy was only regarding whether it was a hearing miracle or a speaking miracle. But there was no debate on whether it was foreign languages. So we make it through the first 1,500 years of church history and nobody has debated whether speaking in tongues is foreign languages or unintelligible babbling. It's clearly foreign languages. The only debate that raged in some of those church fathers was, was it a gift in the hearing? Is that the miracle? They spoke it in their own language, the speaker's language, and it was heard by other languages, or was it the speaking in a language that was foreign to the speaker himself? That was the debate in the, in the church pre-Reformation. It seemed to me, I've had this same question in my own mind, and, and my question is in Acts 2, where it would either end up being some sort of very confusing everybody talking and different people hearing their languages, or something happened in the hearer's ear from a foreign language and all of a sudden they hear it in their own language. That seems a doable interpretation from there, and I've wondered about that myself. Right, and, I, and there's... Acts 2 implies it was a spoken miracle, and yet there, there's some wiggle room there that obviously great minds wanted to debate whether it was heard or spoken in the languages. When we read uh, in Acts chapter 2, 
Let's see. Verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then it lists some of those tongues there in verse uh, 9 and 10 and 11. Uh, So it implies it was spoken, uses the word, you know, speaking in other tongues, and so we'll just take that as that's all we have. Um, Could that be a summary of how somebody described it if they heard it that way? Well, sure. So it could have been hearing, but again, that doesn't seem crucial. My point would be uh, the church debated tongues, but it was only the hearing or speaking miracle, not the babbling versus intelligible speech. Then we come to the reformers, and you'll, you'll find in the 1500s, no debate on the matter. It was understood as foreign languages. You study the Puritans in the 16 and 1700s, and still no debate. This is, this is just not a topic it, it, that has been in church history. It was clearly understood as foreign languages. Uh, you get to the 1800s, which would be in England, kind of late Puritans like Spurgeon. Um, in the States, this would be like Charles Hodge at Princeton University, and then B.B. Warfield, who goes from Princeton and starts Westminster Seminary. Uh, and again, they speak nothing of a debate. Uh, it, it is clear that tongues in Scripture is foreign languages. So church history, though anecdotal in comparison to Bible teaching, obviously, we, we're taking authority from Scripture, but we're helped to look at church history and see what have they said. And what they said was nothing other than tongues are foreign languages. So if the Bible gives no indication of a definition change from Acts chapter 2 that they spoke in foreign languages, utterances as given by the Spirit, then again, the burden of proof is on anyone who wants to say this is what tongues really is. It's, it's just uttering syllables that, you know, need to be interpreted by someone. And, I, and we could go into a lengthier study, but there are, there are believing and unbelieving linguists who have completely dismantled any sense that this is, that glossolia, any, any modern tongue speaking is anything other than syllables from that own speaker's language. Um, people can't even fake this well. Um, they just go with what's in their brain. They learned a language and those syllables come out um, and it is not intelligible speech and it is not, apparently, I would argue, anything that needs Bible interpretation. Interestingly enough, when we look at church history and see all through the centuries, no real debate, when we get to the modern tongues movement, it began among a group of people that clearly were passionate about the Holy Spirit but they also believed that speaking in tongues was speaking in foreign languages. The modern tongues movement, uh, which is the redefinition of tongues as unintelligible utterances, began in a group of people that believed that tongues was speaking in foreign languages. It wasn't too far from here. It was out in Topeka. In 1901, a student at Bethel College spoke in unintelligible babblings in, in a kind of time of spiritual fervor there. And it was claimed to be speaking in tongues. So they believed this was a fresh outpouring of the Spirit to be able to speak in foreign languages. 
Charles Parham, who is known as the founder of modern Pentecostalism. He was the college leader at the time. He was convinced from the Bible that the gift of tongues was the speaking of foreign languages supernaturally, languages the speaker had never learned. So that was the position of the church before it was called this Pentecostal movement. It was the position of the, uh, the teaching there at the college and uh, that of Charles Parham. Parham was quoted in the Topeka Journal on January 7, 1901, as saying, The Lord will give us the power of speech to talk to the people of the various nations without having to study their languages in schools. They felt like this language that was being spoken by this student was clearly the sign that the Spirit was again pouring out this gift that had been silent for all these years. Kansas City Times at the time, January 27th, 1901. A part of our labor will be to teach the church the uselessness of spending years of time preparing missionaries for work in foreign lands when all they have to do is ask God for power. They were pumped about this. They thought this will revolutionize the modern missions movement. Shame on Adoniram Judson. Shame on Hudson Taylor for wasting all their time trying to... I mean, they spent years learning the languages of India and China when all they had to do was ask God for the power, and now that's what we're going to do. The Hawaiian Gazette in May of 1901, Parham said there, there is no doubt that at this time they will have conferred on them the gift of tongues if they are worthy and seek it in faith, believing they will thus be made able to talk to the people with whom they choose to work among in their own language, which will, of course, be an inestimable advantage. The students of Bethel College do not need to study in the old way to learn the languages. They will have them conferred on them miraculously, being able to converse with Spaniards, Italians, Bohemians, Hungarians, Germans, and French in their own language. I have no doubt various dialects of the people of India and even the languages of the savages of Africa will be received during our meeting in the same way. I expect this gathering to be the greatest since the days of Pentecost. So hear this. The founder of modern Pentecostalism is saying these tongues have not existed since Pentecost and now they will. We will speak in foreign languages miraculously again. But they had a big problem. They sent missionaries all over the world, and it didn't work anywhere. Modern charismatics, authors like Jack Hayford that some of you would recognize, or David Moore, wrote of their own movement's history saying, quote, Sadly, the idea of tongues as foreign languages would later prove an embarrassing failure as Pentecostal workers went off to mission fields. With the gift of tongues and found their hearers did not understand them. So Parham, Bethel College, before the movement of Pentecostalism as kind of a redefined denomination, they faced quite a dilemma when their experience didn't match their exegesis. Their experience was somebody had uttered these babblings. Their exegesis said it's foreign languages and we can miraculously speak in them. But when their experience didn't meet what their study of the Bible said, they simply chose to change what 
the Bible says. They changed their exegesis and came up with a new idea. And their idea was, well, maybe tongues after Acts 2 isn't foreign languages like the church has always thought, like we ourselves thought, but because this must be real what this student did among us, and by then they were even writing in tongues, all these scratchings that kind of borrowed from Chinese symbols and all kinds of letters and believed it was writing in tongues as well. Um, All of this experience must be real, so let's just say that this is real and it works and we'll redefine tongues. And they did, and it became definitive of their movement. And thus was birthed the Pentecostal movement, and it would have its other branches eventually, but that was birthed out of a controversy, an in-house controversy. Oh, no. Our experience is cr- wild and crazy, and we, we got to do something with this, and this must be the Holy Spirit, and this is what the Bible says, but wait a minute, they don't match. We're going with experience. It's too good to not be true. And thus was birthed the modern tongues movement. Again, even that history is anecdotal. But the fact of the matter is, everyone who has studied the Bible has been forced to answer this question, why do we change the definition of tongues from foreign languages to unintelligible utterances if the Bible doesn't do that and church history proves that that has not been the definition and the modern Pentecostal movement also declares to us in their own words and in their own history um, that this definition of tongues has to change to fit our liking, not our understanding of Scripture. Roy? Don't they also at some point try to lean on uh, 1 Corinthians 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, trying to claim that these could in fact be angelic. Angelic utterances, right. Um, angelic, unintelligible. Unintelligible isn't like a, a slanderous kind of use of the word. It's just a descriptive. So whether it's un- angelic um, or unintelligible, both of them mean the same to us. You know, even if we were Pentecostal and practiced tongues, we would say it's unintelligible to us. It needs to be interpreted. Um, and, and, and admittedly, some continuationists slash charismatic Pentecostalists will have an interpreter, so at least they go to Scripture and see, well, oh, there needs to be someone to interpret. Um, But they will have to answer this question of redefining tongues as foreign languages. Roy brought up 1 Corinthians 13. And while that text may not be considered a slam dunk for sensationism, um, though I would argue it strongly supports it, it also offers very little support and raises real questions for continuationism as well. So I would choose to argue with a continuationist, recognizing, okay, I'll set 1 Corinthians 13 aside and argue from elsewhere. And if you really want to get into 13, we can do that. Um, But generally, a continuationist is quick to say, well, 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't have to mean uh, that these gifts ceased with the coming of Scripture because that which is perfect must be Christ." because that's the only thing that's perfect. But they would also argue that Scripture is perfect. It's inerrant. So um, eventually, 
1 Corinthians 13, I feel like it funnels down into uh, an argument that could be used for cessationism. But again, setting that aside, we would go to other places in Corinthians, chapter 11 or chapter 14. And for continuationists, these chapters must be the normative practice of the church rather than the transitional regulations for the church until full revelation is given. So there should be gifts of knowledge and wisdom revealing divine, authoritative, inerrant truth still today if we're going to lean on a continuationist view. There should be foreign language miraculously spoken for the spread and confirmation of the gospel. There should be gifts of interpretation for those who don't understand those foreign languages. There should be prophets and prophetesses giving us truth in prayer or in prophecy while minding God's guidelines for having heads covered or not. All of these and more are issues that should still be the normative practice of the church if we're continuationists, if cessationism uh, carries the way of your thinking, then these chapters become regulations for this transitional time where people are prophesying, while apostles are laying the foundation of the church until that full authority of God's word is revealed to the church. But frankly, we don't look around and see any of those things in any one church or denomination. Um, And so we're left to think clearly in practice, the church is not doing what is normative if all of these things are prescribed for the normative practice of the church today. All roads seem to lead to the concern for sola scriptura. Is the Bible the sole sufficient authority for the church? If it is, then we, we find a partnership with you and your thinking. Um, but it will mean we're going to differ on some definitions and, and practices. Um, because if Scripture is the sole sufficient authority, that means no one else has anything to add that in any way is inspired or divinely given as authoritative on all of the church. That's only Scripture. That's why we say soul It's the sole sufficient authority. We have what we need. Nothing else is counted as divine authoritative revelation. Again, our continuationist brothers, uh, many of them would agree to that 100%. Uh, They are faithful in that way. Therefore, they will redefine prophecy. They will redefine tongues in order for those gifts to continue without infringing on the the Bible's stated purpose for those gifts to confirm the apostolic message of God's divine truth. So the debate with generally like-minded continuationist brothers is not whether they believe the Bible. It's not whether there is only one authority, the Bible. Again, they agree to that. That's why... I, I, I want to just be sure that if you or any of those brothers think a little differently uh, outside of the box I'm drawing, um, that's not alarming in the sense of that's really problematic. You're not honoring the word of God. Um, that's not true. So remember, this is, this, is, this is close friends and family 
theologically, that we picnic with, and while we're picnicking, waiting for the burgers to cook, we're, we're throwing out our most recent thought and argument about this particular topic. And it's taken with, with good-natured ribbing at times, and at times thought-provoking conversation, where our own position gets, gets jabbed a little, and we think, okay, I might not be as dogmatic as I thought I could be because I haven't considered that angle yet. That's where we are. Um, but generally, I'm saying, I feel like there are more questions to be answered by those who want to say the definition of prophecy changes from Old Testament to New or the definition of tongues changes from Acts 2 to Acts 10 and into 1 Corinthians. Those definition changes get to the heart of some interpretive principles that we tend to really get down to the nitty-gritty when we're having this debate. Uh, So sola scriptura, nail that down for sure, and then, going back to the analogy of faith, build on what we know is clear in Scripture to help us interpret the unclear, and then whatever whatever interpretation we think we're going to take on prophecy, on tongues, make sure it fits with the rest of Scripture. And especially... Uh, as those New Testament letters unfold, we start realizing we, we are moving through the transitional, foundational era of apostles and prophets, and somehow we get to the era where it's not foundational anymore. We are now building the New Testament church on that foundation. We all have to come up with a line for where that happens because we're not in the era of the apostles laying the foundation of the church. Um, so... Somewhere that happens, this whole debate rages because the Bible doesn't say exactly, here's when it happened exactly, and so everyone can agree without any interpretive struggle at all. No, we have to do some wrangling and wrestling in our minds with what we see in Scripture to recognize there is a foundation and there is a building area. There were apostles and prophets, and their message was confirmed with signs and wonders. How does that carry over into the normative practice of the church? Well, let's talk about it. And that's what we've tried to do. Um, and you've clearly seen that, that my interpretation of all these questions and answers is uh, what would be called a cessationist position. God's not in a box. We're not putting them there. But we are asking if God himself has drawn some lines and boxes. And if we can prove from Old and New Testaments that God had, at any time has assigned temporary nature to any gift then we're okay with cessationism, regardless of whether you think some gifts continue or in certain ways or in differing ways. What has been established is that continuationists and cessationists alike agree that some things are temporary and some things have ended. They've ceased. We're just saying to what extent and how many of those gifts are in that category. Two admonitions. Avoid saying never and avoid saying or using unwisely the word normal. So don't say miraculous gifts never happen in the church. One, the burden of proof is on you to establish that universal statement. Um, And are you willing to say from Scripture that God would never again intervene in some miraculous way into the affairs of man? So... So don't say miraculous gifts never happen. 
and I would argue, don't say all miraculous gifts are normal for the church today. Um, So I'm not going to say never, because that's God's business, but I'm not going to say normal either, um, because I know in my mind the apostles ceased. I'm going to argue from the sufficiency of Scripture that I think divine revelation has ceased. So I'm not willing to redefine prophecy. I'm not willing to redefine tongues based on what I see in Scripture. So I'm going to say miraculous gifts uh, are not normal for the church, even though I wouldn't say they never happen. You have to think through the matter as well. If you have more questions, I'm glad to talk to you anytime or point you to books or articles um, that can at least help you think through. Um, It'll help you raise questions about Bible that you can go back and study because you might not even know where else to look or what the other arguments are. Well, that's fine. Dive into it. Uh, Ask the Spirit for help. Remember, we should be asking the Spirit for help about questions about the Spirit. So uh, don't be afraid of questions. Don't be afraid of uncertainty. And I would say don't be cemented in your position. Um, There might be something yet for you to learn. Um, The Holy Spirit might show you that you're not on par with him uh, in complete understanding. And so let him be a teacher and a guide. All right. Any questions you have to wrap up the conversation here? This all started because we saw this man who was lame for 40 years sitting at a gate in Acts chapter 3. And the next thing you know, he's walking and leaping and praising the Lord. And we want to know, is that the normal practice of the church today? Should, should we be seeing that more? Should our wheelchair-bound friends who are believers be fully expecting any one of us to exercise the gift of healing? Those are the kind of questions that come out of observing the Holy Spirit being poured out on the church and a layman leaping. And I think if we come to Scripture, we can begin to answer that question. But it's going to involve questions of the temporary nature of gifts, the normative practice of those gifts in the church. Uh, What should we expect to see? How does the Spirit work today? All valid questions. Uh, it's not just an exciting controversy in the church. No, it's, it's a necessary conversation so that we can fully marvel at and worship the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, uh, and appreciate why he was given to us as his church. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We do rest on it uh, as our sole sufficient authority. May that be true not only in interpretive matters and systematic theology, but may it be true in our daily struggle with temptation, as we'll study in the hour to come. May the authority of your word become even more relevant to our marriages and to our parenting and to our choices, even this afternoon. May our belief in your word be evident by the way we live today, not simply by the way we engage in these, uh, in these helpful conversations about theological nuance. Uh, there's much more at stake, that being whether we yield to the lies of the devil or not. So may your word dwell in us richly. And may even today in our 
gathering of worship and fellowship, may we speak to one another in ways that encourage and admonish as that word spills out into those conversations. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who embraces fully his responsibility to guide us into truth and to point us to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.